Um, hi, welcome back to Psychology Through Lies of Faith. Today I'm with Professor Vickers from the Counseling um, Psychology Department. Um, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Brenna Vickers, and I have I'm in my 11th year teaching at Tacoma Falls College, and before that I had worked in the Counseling Center for seven. Nice, and you you went to school here. Yes, I graduated in 1988. I was in the first class that um, was able to graduate with a full major in counseling. It was called Christian Counseling at the time. Wow. Yeah. So did you stay here? I actually never knew that. Did you stay here like the whole time after you graduated or did you move somewhere else? Yeah, I did. I got engaged on the day of graduation and we got married four months later and I have been here since. Um, so my first question is, what made you, oh, I don't even know if I said this, but today we're talking about marriage and family counseling. Um, and my first question is, what made you, made you interested in the field you are now? And also, like, what title do you hold? Like, your okay, yeah. Um, I am a licensed professional counselor, and when I decided to go in, um, on to get my master's, there were no ma- uh, marriage and family therapy programs near within, I mean, probably within a couple of hours of TACOA. Mm-hmm. And online was not a thing at that point. So I attended University of North Georgia and got my um, master's in clinical counseling, became a licensed professional counselor. And, um, but I've always been really interested in marriage and family. I would say that was probably my favorite class in undergrad. It was definitely my favorite class in graduate school. And then again, in my doctoral program, I, I just love everything about marriage and family therapy. Although I am not a marriage and family therapist, but we can counsel wow. couples and families. So, but would you say like that's your specialty? Um, yeah, I would. I'm not practicing now. Um, I'm, I'm able to practice, but just with my schedule, I don't have time to have a um, continual practice. So, but it is my area of interest. Um, so specialization, if I was practicing, yes. But since I'm not, yeah. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Um, so how many different places would you say you've worked in your career? And also, what's like the most memorable place that you worked at. Okay. Um, right out of college with just my undergrad, I worked in social services in a nursing home for several years. Um, and then I quit to stay home with my kids. And so I was a stay-at-home mom, which I loved. Um, and as they got into school, I decided that it was time to go back and get my master's. And soon after graduating with my master's, I got pregnant with my youngest child. Um, but I had already started working in the counseling center here. Um, and so really that in-between time when I was staying home with my kids, I was just doing mom part-time jobs and different things like that. But, um, so my professional time, I, apart from my practicums, I was counseling at the counseling center and then I transitioned to teaching and I would say my favorite is teaching. Um, when I was counseling, I was passionate about counseling, but I knew down the road I always wanted to teach after I got a lot of experience. And that came a couple years earlier than I thought it would. Um, I thought it would be sometime after 10 years, but it was at seven years, an opportunity came open where um, somebody left the counseling department, and so there was a job opening. 
So yeah. yeah, there was a job opening here. So I applied and was hired and have never had a regret. I look back and think it's been a couple of years. Oh my, it's been 10. Yeah. It's just, I love doing it and um, it's going too fast. Yeah. So I feel like I actually have this question in my head beforehand. I think I was like planning to ask you, and I don't know if it goes like a bit off script, but I've always wondered how do people, like if someone is going into the master's and they have children, like as a mom, how do you do that? Like, I don't know if you said you did it while you had kids, but you went back after they were in school. Yeah. And I think it's going to be for every person, it's going to be different. Um, some people may go straight out of college and then start having their family mm-hmm. um, and working. And there's nothing wrong with working when you have children. I, I'm not somebody that has a strong opinion. I think it's dependent on every family and every person's different. Yeah. Um, you know, I chose to stay at home with my kids. But like I said, I did have little part-time jobs, but they were things like gymnastics coordinator for my daughter's program. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that to say, it depends on the person. It depends on the childcare situation. It depends on finances. Um, I didn't stay home with my last child because I literally had just started a brand new profession and, um, I had an amazing childcare situation for him that was literally on campus. So when he was a baby, I was able to go see him at lunch and, um, you know, feed him, and, you know, it was just an amazing situation. So, but again, that isn't for everybody. So it's just going to depend. Yeah. I, I wish I had a black and white answer for you, but there's not. Yeah. I mean, the more I think about it, it's like also, you know, in this economy, it's like, can you afford it? Yeah. Because I know some people, it's like, like, even my siblings, they're like, you know, we're both going to have to work, but mm-hmm. we don't know if we can support a child without. Yeah. So it's crazy, like, what it has, you know, what it kind of almost has to come to these days versus mm-hmm. what you desire. Yeah. But. Well, and I do know a lot of people who are working, um, or wait, let me start over. I know a lot of people who are staying at home with their kids, but either working something online, working something part-time, or working on their master's while they're staying at home with their kids. So there are all kinds of options. Um, And I think my middle daughter was about seven when I went back to my grad program, or when I started my grad program, and that was because she was in school and pretty settled. And um, I had somebody, it was a TFC student, who would nanny her like for the, an hour or so right after school and you know it worked out fine because that was playtime for her mm-hmm. and so i don't feel like i missed out any on anything yeah that that reminds me of um i have a family member she she just had a baby so she has three kids now and she's been working from home online mm-hmm. yeah. but i don't know that's i mean you know i it just makes me realize that women can do like amazing things because oh, it just yeah. seems like impossible almost yeah i don't know because i've been there and i'm like she's busy um but my next question is, what age group of minors have you worked with the most, and what have you noticed most about them? Um, I, I would say that I worked mostly with middle school and high school, more so than the elementary age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess what I would want to say is they're not as scary as you think they are. 
because I remember at one point thinking, oh, I don't want to work with middle school kids. But then when my kids got to middle school, I'm like, oh, man, this is such a great developmental stage. Yeah. But I don't want to work with high school. Mm-hmm. And then when they got into high school, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. You know, I want to work with them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just being around them and getting familiar with them takes that stigma of, Oh, that's a crazy age. Yeah, trouble um, teen. Yeah, and yeah. And but once you work with them, you realize, oh my goodness, they just need support. They just need somebody to understand them, or somebody to try or want to get them. Yeah, yeah. But my favorite age, to be honest, is college age. Yeah. So that's <laughs> well, why I'm, that's why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I noticed that about when I did camp this past summer. I was with, like, 15-year-olds. And granted, it was so hard because they, I don't know, they put this front and they, like, I noticed, like, in everybody else who I worked with, they were like, I mean, yeah, this age group, it's like they they act like they know everything. Like, they're almost overly confident. And mm-hmm. it's not, like, me trying to insult them at all. It's, like just an observation I had but like because of that and because I was our counselor I saw moments where underneath it's like no like I see that under the surface like the what you truly desire like it's a lot yeah. more vulnerability that right. they don't want to show yeah so but one-on-one was... they will yeah yeah so that was really interesting yeah exactly um and that's what was really interesting when we had when I had one-on-ones it was like mm-hmm. I can finally like like you know I hope that you feel safe enough to break down your walls with me yeah. so that we can, like, get somewhere almost, like, to get to see, okay, like, what do you want to talk about when it comes to your faith and, like, yeah. your life? Because that's what I, like, really wanted. I really just wanted them to feel safe enough to, like, just talk about things that they maybe couldn't talk about with others. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that was a really interesting, like, time or job I had to really see like what that age is like because I only know or have experience with my younger brother and he's he's like 15 but he's different he's like like in my opinion he feels very um not mature like mature in his faith for his age like I've not met a lot of of kids his age who like you know so involved in their faith and like to spread the gospel at his school yeah like it's really cool so that's neat yeah um So what is a very basic guideline to how couples counseling works when a couple first comes in? Well, when a couple first comes in, um, really you're going to spend the first couple of sessions getting to know them and assessing what's going on because they're not going to come in and tell you exactly what's wrong and diagnose themselves. Mm -hmm. So spending that time getting to know them, asking the right types of questions. But once you start working with them, I think usually the first thing that I would work on is healthy and safe communication. Because if you don't have safe communication, then there's going to be walls, there's going to be defenses, and you're not going to, um, they're not going to be on the same page. But if there's safe communication and they know, okay, I can say this in a way that's not offending the other person, and they can respond to me in a way that's not offending me, at least we can have some genuine conversation to let each other know what we're experiencing and what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I would say safety and communication yeah. is, is key. I think one of the most amazing things I've ever heard is that you can't have, like, you can communicate all day long, but if 
people can't comprehend. Like, if mm-hmm. you can't comprehend what that person is saying or vice versa, it's, like, not going to get anywhere. Right. And right. I thought that was really interesting because I, I know in times of my life, like, I thought that's all you needed. And with a certain relationship, like, friendship, I had, it was, like, oh, like, why isn't this working? Like, we're communicating. But mm-hmm. in reality, they were not comprehending. Like, they were not trying to understand what I was saying. Yeah. It was always, you know. But, um. So what would you say, like, for the whole family then? Um, probably same thing for the whole family, but a lot of assessing to understand what is the structure of the family, um, what are their boundaries, what are their rules. Um, and when I say rules, I'm not talking about a written list of don't do this and don't do that, but a lot of rules happen naturally, not necessarily in a good way, but rules just appear because of expectations and or because of experiences like a child could say oh I know that I can't do this because last time I did that I got yelled at and so that creates a rule for that family without ever having spoken it Mm -hmm. and so you know trying to figure out what are the rules what are what's working what's not working Um, is there what we call triangulation in the parent subsystem where maybe somebody else, a third person, whether that's because of an affair, because of work, because of um, pulling a child in, but somebody that's a, acting as a go-between or a disruption between the husband and the wife. Yeah. And so just trying to assess that, who all is involved, who all do you consider to be part of your family, why are they not here, um, and, and just trying to understand the dynamics before you can really um, assess what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And do you think triangulation can happen between, like, it doesn't have to be between parents and child, mm-hmm. but it can be maybe, like, between a parent and two siblings or, like, in that kind of dynamic? Well, usually we talk about it within the context of the marriage couple. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess, you know, if you wanted to look at it a little bit looser, yeah, if in the if a parent were to come down into a child subsystem and act as a child or always be the mediator between them and not let them work themselves through situations, then you know that probably technically would be considered triangulation. But usually we're just looking at that within the marital context. Yeah, because I'm thinking of the only time I've had like personal experience with that is between like in my family it was between adult and between a sibling and I mm-hmm. was like the middleman and once I found out about that concept I was like wait like that's kind of that's like what's yeah. happening to me and there was a point where I had I like received acknowledgement about what was happening I was like I'm not gonna let that happen anymore and I I said I was like I'm not gonna yeah. be your middleman anymore yeah and so, I think that could be for any relationship yeah that concept yeah um and to kind of go off of that, another question that came up in my head is what do you feel like people, like either couples or families, what do you feel like is the most, like the number one issue they come in? Like they present when they, you know, say why they're coming in, what is like that reason? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't have a definitive answer for you. Um, statistically, I'm sure there's something out there that says this particular issue is most prevalent, but I think they, it all goes back probably to communication and safety because if there's something going on in the family, like if mom and dad are not getting along, 
but that is their norm, then a lot of times you're going to have one of the children unconsciously create a problem that the family then has to all circle around and try to help fix. And that's called the identified patient. You know, so it's almost like a, an unconscious screen for help to say this family situation isn't working for one reason or another. Um, but a lot of times parents don't know how to work with rebellious teens or they don't understand what the teens need. Um, and so, you know, you might see them coming in once their kids hit adolescence. Um, but a lot of times whenever it's a child that is the focus, it's because there's something bigger in that system happening that needs to be addressed. Um, so what have you seen in marriage slash couples counseling that you believe every couple should implement in the relationship? Safe communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we, we learn how to be able to communicate needs or communicate complaints even mm -hmm. in a safe way. You know, when this happens, blah, 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 I feel this or, or the result is that I'm feeling um, overwhelmed or I feel taken advantage of and the other person has to not defend themselves but give a reflection stating okay so when I do this that makes you feel this way mm -hmm. and once they get that green light that yeah that's how I feel then they can say well the reason I do this is because I thought that the result would be blah 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 and so it goes back and forth like that where they're actually explaining this is my reason for doing that rather than just escalating and yelling, you never do this, you yeah. you always do that, that type of yeah. thing. And I think that's what's so interesting about that and something I feel like a lot of people could really value from knowing just something as simple as that is changing your language and the way you yeah. speak to right. your partner right. and using I instead of you. And right. then the other person, instead of getting defensive, using what you know we learn in counseling skills of you know just reflection of feeling mm -hmm. reflection of meaning and yeah. i remember in that class when i first learned all, the, all those things in my head i'm like gosh like if everyone just did this i know yeah things would work out so well yes. for so many people right um yeah and there's just so many things in other like it reminds me of how there's so many things in other areas of counseling where people could just implement such simple things mm -hmm. and it would just and a lot of times change. that's all it is yeah. yeah and something else that i think marriages need to be reminded of is that you're on the same team and a lot of times the couples will come in and they're competing against each other or they're just not on the same page whereas it's like no you're you're fighting against yourself when you do this you're a team you're not competing you need to be facing this together. You need to realize that when this is resolved, it's good for both of you. Yeah. Um, but so many times they come in as individuals trying to win the argument. Yeah, it reminds me of a statement that I saw where it's like it's not it's not you against each other. It's like both of you against the problem. Right. And that's exactly. Action. Yeah, so, that's good. That's good. Um, so what would you say is the most detrimental yet simple thing a couple can do to their relationship? Hmm. Um, if we're talking general, um, I would say kind of what we've been talking about, 
being individually minded and not listening to the other person, not not putting them first, but putting self first. Because marriage has to be putting the other person first. And if you're both doing it, and you're both doing it well, then it works. If only one person does it, it can work for a while, but it, it can also backfire on that person. Um, so I would say putting yourself first is detrimental. Yeah, and that's, that's so good because like, that's why they say you, know, you have to put God first in your relationship mm-hmm. because that in turn makes you want to serve the other person, like your partner right. yeah. more than yourself. Because it's, it's almost impossible in the flesh. I mean, we yeah. can do it for a while in the flesh, but mm-hmm. long-term it's not sustainable. But only by God's mm-hmm. grace and God's empowerment can we really, truly mm-hmm. do it and mean it. Yeah, it, I don't know. Sometimes when I think about that, like marriage without Christ in the middle and people who aren't followers and they are married, sometimes I'm just like, how does it work like how do you do it because you have to your humanness and your flesh Mm -hmm. has to come out at some point Mm -hmm. you can try all you want without it to be as you know a good Samaritan quote-unquote I guess in your relationship or just not even that but like you know serve the other person but I feel like when you're not like God is that source right and when you don't have it at some point I just don't know it's 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 crazy to me that it works but I you know there's of course evidence that it does yeah but just prop you know that doesn't mean it's like how it was made to be right so exactly um so my next question is how can abuse between parents affect their children and even infants oh goodness um kids need to know that they're secure um children need to know that their parents love each other They need to know that their parents are the ones that are providing a secure life for them. I would say to the point where, and I've said this in class before, but to the point where um, a child, it's okay to say this to a child, that I love mommy or daddy more than you. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I don't love you. That means as much as I love you, I love them more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people raise their eyebrow at that and say, oh, how could you say that? And it's like, well, think about it. That's investing in the child to say your dad or your mom is my partner and we love each other so much and you are a result of that and you are a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But letting the child know that their life is secure and safe is the best way. So... In answering your question, going back to the abuse, um, I think the abuse makes them, um, like if there's abuse between the parents or incessant or constant arguing, um, it just makes the child feel insecure, makes them feel even responsible when they have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And for babies, they say that because the babies are so impressionable at that age, they pick up on that and it imprints in their brain and they can end up developing some um, behavior issues as a result of that once they hit their toddler and um, early elementary years. Mm-hmm. It um, reminds me of, like, what I really liked about this question is 
um, I'll never forget when I learned that, you know, domestic violence between parents, just between the adults, can have more impact on the infant than abuse towards the infant. Not that, like, it can't, of course, severely damage the infant if they have abuse onto them. Because it can get, you know, like, it can get severe to the point of, you know, something you can't come back to come back from physically but you know when it comes to like mentally and emotionally I was just I was kind of awestruck I was like that's that's insane just mm-hmm. seeing it and being around it like it if I think it I don't know if um you were the one that showed the video in class but it is it's a video of like you know shows that out of the three children the one yeah. that was affected the most was the infant right and and I think that's because we take for granted that, oh, well, they don't understand. So one of the parents doesn't necessarily go comfort them. And because of what's happening, they may not be crying. They may just be in there scared to death trying to figure this out because they don't understand. But yet the comfort goes to the older children because they witnessed it. They saw it. They understood it more. And not that they're neglecting that baby, but they're not aware that how it's affecting the child because... You know, you could say, well, if a child is exposed to a trauma unintentionally, um, does that mean that they're going to have problems? No, it doesn't, because there's that level of comfort after the fact to reassure them you're safe, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. But I think in those situations, like in that video where there was domestic violence and the baby was, quote unquote, asleep in the other room, Mm -hmm. everyone assumed, oh, the baby slept through it. Good. They don't know. So... I'm not going to go offer that comfort and let them know everything's okay. I'm focusing on my kids who are shaking and crying right now. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It does. It um it just also it just reminds me of how it it's crazy to me that people don't realize how important attachment is for infants mm-hmm. and babies like newborns to like two and how you know the misconception of spoiling an infant and you know letting them cry it out and after learning how detrimental that can actually be when you let kind of those things happen Mm -hmm. and not realize how much it's needed for attachment and Mm -hmm. healthy attachment and in the future um it just makes a huge difference yeah well in there you know we've talked before about how a lot of times the pendulum will overswing to correct something Mm -hmm. and you know so the crying it out movement may not have been as healthy as it could have been and so then it was well if the baby's screaming I'm going to go in every time they start to scream Mm -hmm. and then that kind of conditions them that I'm going to get I'm going to get attention every time I scream so you know the pendulum swung totally the opposite direction So what you want to look at is if I want my child, and we're going through this with, I say we, my daughter and son-in-law are going through this right now with their baby who is six months old, put her in her own crib, in her own room, and not in the bassinet anymore next to their bed. And so if she's crying, they go in like every five minutes, pat her on the back, reassure her, and shush, you know, everything's okay, and then go out. And if she escalates or if she continues to cry, you know, go back in five or ten minutes, pat her on the back, let her know that she's there, she's okay. And um, basically, maybe the first night that baby might cry for 10 or 15 minutes, um, but the next night it's five minutes. And then eventually, you know, they realize I'm secure, this is bedtime, and it's okay for me to just go to sleep. 
Um, but, you know, whenever you have that pendulum swinging, of, well, let them cry it out till they stop. They'll eventually stop. Well, they're in there for maybe two hours crying with no comfort, and they don't understand why isn't anyone there. But yet, pendulum swinging to once they first make a peep, yeah. you're in there rescuing them, picking them up, and disrupting that almost sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so my next question is, how can something as common as divorce affect children? Um, well, I mean, I think we all know that divorce affects children many different ways. Um, I think the key is going to be how the parents treat each other. If the parents are antagonistic toward each other, if the parents use the kids as pawns against each other for custody, then that just creates insecurity, that creates blame, shame. It, it can create all kinds of things. Um, and so, but I think if, if parents can at least agree on how to parent the kids through it, they can at least survive and be confident through that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, nobody starts a marriage wanting divorce, but unfortunately, there are a lot of divorces. and. Um, the kids are the byproducts of that. So I, I think trying to be as civil as possible is going to help the child and, and communicate with the child, you know, on yeah. the reasons why and being honest. Yeah, I think it can make all the difference between the strife that can happen mm-hmm. when parents don't communicate, they make, you know, one parent the enemy. Towards right. The, like, to the child, they make the other parent the enemy. Um, can be the difference between healthy communication right. and, you know, the parent trying their best not to get their biases mm-hmm. get in the way of parenting the child right. and making a better experience. Um, so, oh, yeah. So what do you believe to be a common misconception about couples who are wary about coming or going to um, counseling together? Um, I think the biggest hindrance is that they're afraid the counselor's going to take sides mm-hmm. or they're going to take the spouse's side and not theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that whoever it is that's pursuing counseling, the other one who is coming, maybe begrudgingly or maybe willingly, their defenses are going to be up looking. Did they say that against me? Are they siding with that other, with my spouse? <clears throat> Um, so that's definitely a challenge that you have to overcome immediately and let them know, you know, I'm here for the couple. I'm not going to be choosing sides. I might challenge you, but I might challenge you too. So I I make no guarantees on that, but I will guarantee I'm not going to pick sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's a challenge. Um, challenge might also be daycare for kids, child care. Um, other challenges um, would be finances. A lot of therapists offer the um, sliding scale based on income. So if their regular fee is $150, based on income, it might range. They may be charged anywhere from $30 to $100, um, depending on what their income is. That's really interesting. I never knew that. Um, When it comes to, I guess, kind of going off of that, when it comes to uh, counseling the couple, are there certain instances where you would counsel them more mostly separate versus mostly together? 
Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I think you're registered to take marriage and family next next semester, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, we'll definitely call. call I can't talk. Cover that, but for the most part, you want to counsel them together as a general rule. But counseling them separate can be effective for different reasons. Um, you may offer that if somebody wants to see you separately, you're willing to do that. But usually there's um, an expectation that when we come together, we both know what we both are, are sharing. So if somebody wants to meet with me separately, I would have to have that conversation on, is this a confidential thing or not? I don't feel comfortable with that. There's actually a form that you can have them sign for couples therapy through the um, American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. It's called the No Secrets form, where it means if I meet with you separately, I'm not going to hold a secret um, from your spouse. So, you know, there's a time and a place for that. Um, if the marriage issue is something that you're dealing with, you may refer one or both to different therapists, not for marriage therapy, but I may refer a husband or a spouse to, or a husband or wife to addictions therapy so that they can individually work on their addiction or individually work on something that's not necessarily, um, it may be, it's probably related to what we're dealing with, but it's also intensive therapy that's going to address a particular problem that we just don't have time to address because it's more individual focused, even though it affects both. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, so one of my last questions is what are common themes or scripture and or scriptures that you bring up with your Christian clients? Um, the main, whenever you say scripture, the main one that I, that stands out to me, um, we start out in the marriage and family therapy class um, is Ephesians 5, and that's the one talking about submission. Mm -hmm. And I always start out and remind them that the verse that, when that's usually preached on, it starts with verse 22, but verse 21 says, submit yourselves one to another mm -hmm. for Christ, for the glorification of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, a lot of times, like I said, when it's preached on, they just start, wives, submit to your husbands yeah. and maybe focus on that. And it, I always take time to explain this, and I hope I do it justice today, but when, when you're married, hopefully you're going to marry the person that you respect and love, mm -hmm. not just marry somebody that is unrespectable or unlovable or unreliable, but you're gonna be marrying somebody that you trust and that loves you, and it's a reciprocal thing. And so I look at Ephesians 5 as a beautiful picture of reciprocation. Um, when a wife respects and submits to her husband, he loves her. It's not conditional, but when a husband loves his wife, it makes it so much easier to respect and submit to them. And But we are also in the bigger picture, submitting to each other. So it's not a submission in, um, what is the term, 
where the husband is a taskmaster telling the wife what to do and how to do it and when to do it. Mm -hmm. It's a mutual submission of love and grace and respect where they're working together as a team. Mm -hmm. And um, so those, that's my, my biggest focus, I think, when we're looking at what does scripture say is respect and love. And without the husband loving the wife and without the wife respecting the husband, it makes it difficult for the other to do what they're called to do. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just thinking how, um, like, I've thought about that, just the concept of marriage a lot. And every time I do, I always, like, I'm a, I guess, a big picture one sentence final kind of person so I'm like okay what is the purpose like what is the main idea and I've always gotten to God created marriage to like it says in scripture to show the relation what the relationship between Jesus and the church is supposed to be Mm -hmm. and when I came to that I was like wow that's that's amazing because it goes even beyond yourself in your marriage exactly it goes to the point of showing others it's for others it's for the church it's for society to see that's the kind of relationship Mm -hmm. that the church is supposed to have with Jesus and to show the sacrifice that you both are putting in and it's really amazing and to to you know acknowledge how the church talks about it I have noticed like I don't think I've been to a church because I'm a younger generation so I don't think I've been to a church that only covers the first part with the Mm -hmm. man so I'm glad that they're getting better at covering the second part of you know just as women are supposed to submit to husbands husbands are supposed to do the same and what's really like cool about that and I think really good is that you know if um like how husbands think oh yeah she's supposed to submit to me like the church but it's like you're also yes but it's because you're supposed to submit to her as much as like Jesus does for the church. So like to the point of laying down your life and that's like, I mean, both, both do, but like, I don't know when you think about that and when you read it in Ephesians, you're just like, that's crazy. Like that's, it's, I don't know how to explain it. Well, the focus has always been on wives submit to your husbands and that's in scripture. That is true. I make no apology for that. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. But husbands don't get off easy either. Husbands, like you said, as the church, as Christ loved the church, and as Christ loved the church, was laying down his life. And that's not easy either. That's a pretty high task and a pretty high calling. So, And maybe they don't do it as well as they want to do it. But maybe we don't submit as well as we want to do it. It goes both ways. And it's, again, I don't want that submission word to be in the context of taskmaster. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm going to be a doormat for you. Yeah. I don't believe that. I believe it, it has to do with supporting them, mm-hmm. supporting them in how they run the family and being a part of that, being an equal part of that. We just have different roles. And so, yeah, it's controversial, but it is, I think, maybe part of the fall as well. Whenever you look at that part, um, life is not easy. And God doesn't call us to an easy life, but he can give us power through the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to play that out and to do what he's asking us to do. Yeah. 
And it makes me think, what do you feel like when one partner isn't doing that and one partner is like, I'm not going to say what is your advice, but what I guess what do you feel like is your counseling process to kind of make that equilibrium again? Well, I think the way I treat my husband should not depend on how he treats me and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I need to treat my husband the way God tells me in Scripture to treat my husband, and he needs to treat me the way God tells him, and just by the way, he does a better job at that than I do. Um, but it can't be dependent. It, it's reciprocal, but it can't be dependent that I will if you will. Mm -hmm. It's I've got to do what God's telling me to do. And my belief is that if you are right with the Lord and if you're spending time in his word, he's going to tell you when you're messing up. He's going to convict you. The Holy Spirit's going to convict you that, hey, that wasn't very kind to say you know, or that wasn't very kind to do, you know, you need to get back in line. So I think we need to be doing what the Lord's telling us to do, regardless if our spouse is. But we also need to have the grace to understand what the spouse is going through at the time and support them. Because one thing about family that you're going to learn next spring is that we all go through ebbs and flows. And there are times when... Um, relationships are connecting and and you just you think oh wow we're getting along so well right now this is just really good and then there are times when you don't connect there are times when it's like who are you or what are you thinking mm -hmm. or why in the world did you do that and if we over attend as counselors if we over attend to those moments where they're not getting along or they're not thinking the same then that potentially could create more of a problem but life and its ebbs and flows, I mean, you probably know with um, relationships, friendships that you have, that there are some times when you connect really well and other times when you're like, okay, I need to go have some quiet time away from you. So it's a, it's a togetherness and an, a separateness. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay as long as you always come back together, especially in marriage. Mm -hmm. um, but if we overattend to those separate moments, then it becomes a problem or it can become a problem. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that there, like, there is a kind of a limit when it comes to, you know, it doesn't depend on the other person? Like if, you know, a spouse, they don't do it depending on the other person, but it seems like to the point where the other one is not doing what they're supposed to be, like, you know, abiding in the Lord and doing mm -hmm. what the Lord is calling them to do. Well, I think in a healthy marriage we need to be able to talk to each other about that to say hey something's going on because you've been really distant or you've been really snappy or snarky or whatever but to be able to talk about that safely um, and see what's going on and maybe it's it's just a time where they're struggling spiritually and that's an opportunity for the other spouse to help them or to um, at least know where they're at and it's an opportunity for that spouse who's going through something to be held accountable for okay even though I'm struggling with this particular area I, I will make an effort to treat you and to show you that I love you if, if that makes sense yes. yeah okay yeah it does okay um, well I think that's all my questions for today so, 
Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure. It was good to have you. Well, thanks. Awesome.